0: The Jodcast, not the result of faulty wiring, with Megan Argo, Adam Avison, John Field, Stuart Harper, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, Mark Purver, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, March 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Mark and joining me today are Adam and Libby. Hello. Hello. Now, this episode, we've got a lot of LOFAR, which is the Low Frequency Array, a telescope that uh, a number of the JOGcast team actually went to visit last week.
1: Yay! I was one of the people who went to visit the LOFAR station at Chilbolton near Winchester. And we'll find out what the Jogcast were doing there later on in the show.
0: In the show this time, our LOFAR interviews are with Neil Jackson, Tom Hassel and Anna Kapinska and we find out what you can see in the March night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
2: In the news this month, light echoes from Eta Carina, ultraluminous X-ray sources in M31, and all-sky maps from Planck. Almost 200 years after the massive star Eta Carina underwent a series of large eruptions, you might think that there will be little left to learn about what happened, But, like ships and submarines mapping the ocean floor using sonar, transmitting sound waves and listening for the echoes coming back from objects or rock features, astronomers can use reflections of light from gas clouds to learn something about an astronomical object, even when direct observations are impossible. This technique is particularly useful in studying explosions, like the 19th century eruptions of Iter which produced the spectacular Homunculus Nebula, but which happened before the invention of today's sensitive spectrometers we can use the light from the echoes to help understand the nature of the progenitor object and the characteristics of the explosion. Iticarina is a binary star, and one of the most massive currently known in the Milky Way. In the mid-19th century, it underwent a series of large eruptions, throwing off huge amounts of material and becoming, for a short time, the second brightest star in the sky. Now, astronomers have used light echoes from the explosion to learn more about what happened, and the results have thrown up some interesting surprises. By taking a series of images of the Eta region, spread out over several years, a team of astronomers were able to look for differences in the images as the light echo moved out from the explosion. Using the light from these echoes, the team were able to determine the speed of the ejector from the explosion, the temperature of the material, and the chemicals ejected from the star during the event. Led by Armin Rest of the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, the team published their results in the journal Nature on February the 16th. By photographing the region around Eta Carina several times over many years, the team were able to detect the tiny variations caused by the echo of the light from the explosion moving outwards through the gas. Since this light has travelled along a longer path to reach us, bouncing off gas clouds in the nebula surrounding the star system, it arrives at Earth almost 200 years after the direct light from the explosion. From their observations, the team calculated that the temperature of the gas ejected during the 20-year period of eruption was about 5,000 degrees Kelvin, much cooler than expected based on models of eruptions which, up to now, were thought to have been similar in nature. The authors suggest that a different mechanism may have been responsible for the prolonged period of eruption in this case. Sometimes called supernova imposters due to their luminosity, giant eruptions of luminous blue variable stars involve a large increase in brightness, which drives a loss of material from the star through a dense stellar wind. Such winds have temperatures of more than 7,000 degrees Kelvin, significantly higher than that now observed in the light echo from the Great Eruption of Eta Carina. While other suggestions exist for the cause of Eta Carina's giant eruptions, including an explosion triggered by the accretion of material onto the smaller companion star, the actual mechanism is still unknown, but the data collected from these light echoes will help to test alternative models. February saw the publication of two papers investigating the nature of the first example of a particular type of object in the nearby Andromeda Galaxy. This mysterious class of extremely bright X-ray objects, known as ultraluminous X-ray sources, have been puzzling astronomers for some time, and there is more than one theory to explain their nature. This latest example is not only the first of its kind to be detected in the Andromeda Galaxy, also known as M31, but it is also the closest ULX source so far detected. The object, poetically titled CXO M 31 j 004253one 411422 was detected by the Chandra satellite in observations carried out in December 2009. It was subsequently also detected by X-ray cameras on board both the Swift and XMM-Newton satellites over the next two months as it decreased in brightness. Most known ultraluminous X-ray sources are persistent. They stay bright over long periods of time, but this one brightened suddenly, sharing some properties with galactic X-ray binaries seen in our own Milky Way. Being comparatively nearby, this new object provides an excellent test for the two competing theories on the nature of ULX sources. The two usual models for ULX emission are either a stellar mass black hole, accreting material from the surroundings at an extreme rate, or a so-called intermediate mass black hole, accreting material at a lower rate. Also known as ImbHs, These intermediate-mass black holes are thought to have masses larger than those created in supernova explosions, but smaller than the supermassive black holes found in the centres of galaxies. But so far, there is no direct evidence which proves their existence. The first of these two research papers on the new ULX in M31 examines the X-ray observations and determines that the cause of the emission is likely to be an accreting black hole of a mass some 13 times that of the Sun, which underwent an outburst followed by an exponential decay in luminosity. The authors point out that this behaviour is similar to that seen in outbursts of galactic novae. The second of these two papers also rules out an intermediate mass black hole as the cause of the emission, with the model that best fits the data being a stellar mass black hole in a binary with a partially evolved subgiant companion star. The authors argue that this object shows that the still-hypothetical intermediate mass black holes are not required to reach ULX luminosities although this source, being transient in nature, is not necessarily typical of other ULX sources. Part of the problem with the study of ULX sources is that they are comparatively rare, with most galaxies hosting none at all. The discovery of this source came from an ongoing monitoring campaign which uses X-ray telescopes to regularly observe M31, looking for new and variable objects. In the same month as these two papers were published, a second example of a ULX in M31 was reported by the same monitoring program. In a short telegram published online on February the 13th, the team described the detection of a second ULX, which they planned to continue observing over the next two months, adding valuable information to the study of these rare and unusual objects. And finally, new results from the Planck satellite were presented at a meeting in Italy during February. Designed primarily to investigate the cosmic microwave background, the relic radiation left over from the Big Bang some 13.7 billion years ago, The spacecraft has been mapping the sky since its launch in 2009. The new results include the first all-sky map of carbon monoxide, a gas which is a significant constituent of the cold clouds of gas from which stars form. Such clouds contain large amounts of molecular hydrogen, but hydrogen in this form is very difficult to detect. Since molecular hydrogen and carbon monoxide form under very similar conditions, observations of carbon monoxide, which is much easier to detect, can be used to determine the distribution of molecular hydrogen in the galaxy. Surveys for carbon monoxide using ground-based telescopes are very time-consuming, but Planck is designed to efficiently map the entire sky, so is capable of carrying out such a survey much faster. Such emission gets in the way of the much weaker background radiation from the Big Bang, and astronomers must carefully characterise these foregrounds and remove them from the data before they can map the cosmic microwave background. During its all-sky survey, Planck has also detected a mysterious haze of microwave radiation, apparently coming from the centre of our own Milky Way. This haze has several potential explanations, including supernovae, galactic winds, or the annihilation of dark matter particles. Although so far, none of these suggestions has been confirmed, and the emission remains a mystery.
0: Thanks for that, Megan. And now in the first of the LOFAR interviews, Stuart and I talked to Dr Neil Jackson about LOFAR in general.
3: Hello, and this is the first interview in our LOFAR segment. I'm joined by Dr Neil Jackson. So, first up, uh, LOFAR's quite an unusual telescope in the design and look of it. It doesn't really look like a normal telescope. Why is that?
4: Yes, it looks totally different. Um, When you think of a telescope, you usually think of a large dish which, which rotates around the sky... The LOFAR array, or an individual station of the LOFAR array, basically consists of a series of sticks in the ground, so it's basically aerials which pick up radio waves, and another series of what basically the aerials covered with uh, sheeting. And it's a series of these aerials pick up these radio waves, and all of these signals that come into the individual aerials are combined by electronics and computing in order to form an image of the sky. So each aerial can see a very wide angle in the sky, but what you do is you use electronics and computing to adjust all the signals coming into these uh, individual aerials in order to point at a particular area of sky that you want to. So it's virtually got no moving parts, unlike a conventional telescope. It's electronics and computing that actually selects where you want to look at and then forms your image of the sky.
3: So does that mean it's able to change its resolution on the fly? Can it uh, observe large areas and then uh, observe small areas and then go back and maybe even look at the same data?
4: Yes, it's it's very flexible in the in that way. You can um, you can look at various different parts of the sky at the same time. So you can put several beams on the sky where you look at. Uh, a set of beams which are close together, but but not the same point, so you can look at several different things at once. And depending on the frequency, it has a very wide field of view. So at its lowest frequency, so it will go down to 30 megahertz or even below, at the lowest frequency, the um, field of view can be tens of degrees. It's a very wide field instrument. And that makes it ideal, among other things, for doing surveys of the sky. Even at the higher frequencies, if you go up to 200 megahertz, it has a field of view that's much wider than most conventional telescopes.
3: Most people would probably associate those sort of frequency levels with sort of commercial radio. How do you handle problems to do with picking up signals from commercial radio?
4: Well, a lot of commercial radio in the FM band, which is around 90-100 megahertz, there are two low-far bands there's the low band which runs from 10 megahertz to about 80 90 megahertz and there is the high band which goes from 120 megahertz up to 240 and there is of course a big gap in there because in the middle of that is where you really don't want to be if you're doing radio astronomy there is quite a lot of pickup of radio interference in the bands that low far observes in but there are fairly sophisticated algorithms and ways that you can identify and reject any channels of your data that are contaminated with interference. So you lose 10-20% of your data to interference, but that's okay. You can identify and throw the bad bits away and you can live with that reasonably happily.
0: Does the size of the telescope and the fact that the stations are so spread out help you to get rid of noise? Because presumably the noise environment at each station is quite
4: different. Yes, it is. So having an interferometer means that you automatically reject noise that doesn't correlate between the two. But if the noise is so bad that it saturates your receiver, essentially, then you've then you've got a problem. So even though it is an interferometer, you have to delete chunks of the data where there is interference. The other problem is the ionosphere above the Earth, because it's a bit like looking through moving water in a swimming pool you have a point spread function which varies over your field and that varies with time as well as the ionosphere that you're looking through changes. So again, there is a lot of algorithm development going into removing the ionosphere from maps and it seems to work quite well. But again, it's another thing that you have to worry about when you're making images.
0: Okay. It could be interesting just to explain about the point spread function. I always think that's interesting. You might kind of imagine that a telescope just looks at something but... Basically, the point spread function is telling you that no instrument is completely perfect at seeing.
4: Yes, that's right. So if you have a resolution of an arc second, say, then even an infinitely small blob will be smeared out into into a disk of about an arc second. What the ionosphere does is it gives you a point spread function that is, in general, a funny shape, and also which varies with time. So it can make interpretation of Im- images very difficult unless you get rid of it. And the ionosphere is, is getting particularly bad now because we're getting towards solar maximum, so that uh, certainly doesn't help.
3: Also, I noticed that uh, LOFAR is it's quite spread around the whole of Europe. It's got a site based in Britain, France, a few in Germany, and then big... Splodge right in the middle in uh, the Netherlands. Is there a sort of a reason why you picked this configuration?
4: Yes, it was designed for a wide range of science. So the extended baselines, which is the um, connection of the telescopes in Holland with the telescopes in the rest of Europe, that gives you high resolution. So you can get sub-arc second resolution at the higher frequencies. You can see structures in the sky on scales of uh, better than an arc second. The fact that you have a lot of telescopes in the core of LOFAR, which is located in the northeast of uh, the Netherlands, that means that you can get very good sensitivity to very large-scale structures, and that's what's wanted for some scientific applications. Moving on to the scientific
3: applications, what what will you be doing particularly with LOFAR? What's your interest?
4: Okay, and the project I'm involved in with a lot of others is a project to do surveys of large areas of the sky. Because LOFAR has a very wide field of view, it's ideal for doing large-scale sky surveys. And the idea is to do sky surveys of um, essentially the whole northern sky at various frequencies. And hopefully we should be able to do those sky surveys also at high resolution by using the international baselines. There are a fair number of technical problems with doing that, but we but we hope we can, over the next few years... Uh, try and uh, overcome these and get the surveys going. Uh, My particular interest is looking for gravitational lens systems, which are systems where a background object is multiply imaged by foreground objects. And because LOFAR is doing such large-scale surveys, which will pick up such vast numbers of background sources, then the hope is that some fraction of them will have something close enough along the line of sight to form a gravitational lens system and just because the numbers are so vast then we hope to get a number of these systems
3: what sort of things can you glean from measuring so many dozens hundreds of gravitational lenses
4: well the the basic idea of gravitational lensing is that it gives you it gives you a handle on mass distributions independent of the light that is emitted so if you study lens systems then you can find out things about the mass distribution, including of course the dark matter, in the thing that is responsible for doing the lensing. Studies of radio lensed systems, so studies of systems where the lensed object is a radio emitter, are currently stuck for lack of numbers basically. The surveys of radio loud lens systems are not very complete. There's there's probably about twenty or thirty of them known. There are many more optical lens systems known, and there are reasons why we want to find radio-loud gravitational lens systems. And when you go to these lower frequencies, is that going to
0: help you to pick up more lenses, or to see lenses with a higher sensitivity?
4: We're mainly interested in the high frequencies, because that's where you get the good resolution. So our interest really is to use it as a vast search engine for vast numbers of radio sources. So it's not specifically
0: that it's way down below the frequencies of the telescope to see but rather the, the speed of survey?
4: That's correct, yes. So quite a lot of the other projects within the surveys, and also other projects such as the Epoch of Reionization project, are specifically interested in the fact that it can observe at very low frequencies, because for some classes of sources, such as relic radio sources... Uh, potentially high redshift sources, and also for studying the reionisation signal of the universe, you want to be at low frequencies to do that.
3: And uh, so you mentioned there the reionisation signal. Um, Could you explain what that is?
4: Okay, yes. Uh, one project that is using LOFAR is is trying to detect the signal from the reionisation of the universe. Now, what happened there was that after after atoms formed, after the universe became cool enough for protons and electrons to combine together to form hydrogen atoms. After that, the universe went quiet and dark for quite a long time, and that was basically because stars had not yet formed and quasars had not yet formed. That situation persisted for quite a long time until what's known as the epoch of reionization, which basically means that stars formed, quasars formed, and... Photons began to be released from those uh, from those events in large numbers, which then reionized parts of the universe steadily increasing in in volume. And we think that most of that happened at a uh, register somewhere around 10, although it, uh, it went on for, for, for quite a while. And you can detect the signal from that at least in principle by observing at low far frequencies. It's actually a very difficult measurement. It's a a very worthwhile measurement, but if if it was easy, it would have been done already. It's a difficult measurement because, of course, there's lots of other foregrounds. So there's foregrounds not only in our own galaxy, but there's also foregrounds in the ionosphere above the Earth, which is uh, not only a problem for the reionization experiment, it's a problem for everyone else who have to try and get rid of the ionosphere as well.
0: So when you're looking for that light at Redshift 10, that's really, really old. It's something that comes from when the universe was... Was quite young then.
4: Yes, and the people who do that, uh, who are based in Groningen, are um, developing techniques to remove all the contamination, which is many, many times stronger than the signal that they're looking for.
3: Okay. Well, what about the uh, other key science projects that people want to do with LOFAR?
4: Okay. Well, the main the main scientific applications, apart from large scale surveys and all you can use them for. And apart from the epoch of ionization, there's also a program on pulsars and transient sources, and there is a program on cosmic magnetism, which is basically looking at um, magnetic fields in galaxies by looking at the polarization of the radio waves. There are also other programs as well on solar physics, because uh, the sun is interesting at low frequencies, and there's a program which is looking at that.
0: Um, I have one more question about surveys, actually. Is it practical to survey the entire sky at once and then keep all the data and then combine it in all the different ways to form the different beams on the different bits of the sky? Or is it
4: just too much data to store an entire survey? It's too much data. Unless you keep restricted amounts of the data, it's actually very difficult to to keep all of the data. LOFAR is capable of producing many terabytes of data per day. There has been a petabyte of storage bought in one or two places, but even that assumes that you don't actually keep all of the raw data because there is just so much of it. So what will probably happen with the surveys is that the data will be used to build up good maps and catalogues, and then, unfortunately, you can't keep all of the raw data. You can just keep probably restricted subsamples of it. Okay, but you can always keep
0: going back and resurveying, I suppose, if you need to.
4: Yes, and the idea is to have a sky model which starts off by including very bright sources in a very crude sort of way and then gradually gets deeper and deeper and more and more detailed until you've included all of the millions of sources and you just keep updating that from the new data.
3: Does that require um, big optical fibre networks? between all the different positions, to be able to handle that much data?
4: Yes, there are 10 gigabit links going all around the network, and those lead back to a central correlation station in Groningen. So there is a supercomputer in Groningen, which spends all its time churning through correlating signals from the different LOFAR telescopes in the various countries, and it outputs correlated signals that you can then process into into a radio map. But even the amount of correlated data that the correlator in Groningen outputs is is huge. So even once you've done that, you need a lot of offline computing to actually process that data after you've taken it. So this is just the sort of telescope
0: that couldn't have been created before there was this much computing power around then?
4: Yes, that's right. It's a case of uh, buy computers as late as you can, because if they've got a factor of two more powerful, then that's, that's really useful.
0: OK, uh, thank you very much, Neil Jackson. OK, thank you. Thanks for that, Stuart. And now Libby talked to newly minted doctor and ex-Manchester PhD student Tom Hassel about using LOFAR to detect pulsars.
1: Joining us on the job today is Dr Tom Hassel from the University of Southampton. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. Hello. And you've been using LOFAR to research pulsars. Can you tell us how you do this and what is a pulsar to start off with?
5: Pulsars are the um, remnants of dead stars. So uh, when a star reaches the end of its life, it explodes in a supernova explosion. Um, And this leaves behind a a small, very dense star. So it's about the size of a city, but it weighs um, more than the weight of the sun. Um, And they rotate very fast... As they spin, the uh, the beam of radiation passes by the Earth, and we see a flash of light. That's so. That's for the pulsars. So, what do I do with pulsars? Is I use LOFAR, which is a low frequency telescope. Different frequencies of radio emission comes from different heights in the pulsar atmosphere. Uh, because they come from different heights, the the light takes slightly longer to a, uh, arrive. When it's closer to the neutron star surface than when it's higher up because it has further to travel. Um, with LOFAR, we probe the very lowest frequencies, um, observable from Earth. Um, so we probe the, the highest point in the magnetosphere and we can see all the way down to the neutron star surface. And actually all the radio emission, uh, comes from, um, within a hundred kilometers of the neutron star surface from, from some, um, of the pulsars that we studied.
1: That 100 kilometres. So pulsars actually have a really, really small range.
5: Uh, well, that's that's the uh, emitting region. Actually, the magnetosphere extends out until until the edges rotate faster than the speed of light. Um, so, actually, all of the emission comes from. I think it's something like 0.1% of the magnetosphere. The atmosphere of the pulsar is actually much larger, um, but all of the emission, for some reason, seems to be concentrated in this in this thin layer above the neutron star surface.
1: And do you know why this is?
6: Uh,
5: I haven't got an idea yet. Um that's what we hope to find out with LOFAR because uh, by looking at the shape of the pu- of the flash of light that we see, um so how long it lasts and if it's got features, um we can determine more about the magnetic fields and the structure of the magnetosphere in the emitting region um and figure out how the pulsar emits, which is still not fully understood.
1: So we don't know what's causing this beam that we can intercept as the air pulsar spins?
5: Um, we have we have a rough idea. Um, so we know that um, when electrons spiral around magnetic fields, uh, they emit light. And we know that, well, we think we know that that is what causes this, this beam of light, roughly, but we don't know the specifics, and we don't know the exact composition of the atmosphere of the pulsar, and we don't know um, how exactly these electrons are spiralling and how they're travelling and how they're arranged.
1: So by using LOFAR and looking at the top of this emission, and then I'm assuming you combine it with other telescopes that can probe further and further, like the Merlin network to the surface of the pulsar at higher frequencies, you can get an idea of the emission in the different regions and then hopefully investigate how the pulses are formed.
5: Uh, Well, that's that's right, yes. Uh, So... In my PhD, we had observations from um, LOFAR, and at the same time, also observations with uh, Jodrell Bank at um, 1 gigahertz. So LOFAR is uh, below 200 megahertz. Jodrell Bank, we observed at between 1 and 2 gigahertz, and we had um, Effelsberg observations um, at 8 gigahertz, all at the same time. So we probed the whole range of the pulsar magnetosphere um, simultaneously, and we were able to see the, the shape of the pulse profile and check um, that all the pulses arrived at the same time at the different frequencies.
1: So that way, you all know if you the the time delay at the different frequencies, you can account for that, so you can get the whole series in this pulse profile. And what can you tell from the pulse profile?
5: Um, well, the pulse profile we think uh, maps the shape of the magnetic field um, around the pulsar. So typically, we expect to see um, two peaks, which corresponds to the two different halves of the magnetic field, although this isn't actually what we see in practice.
1: So what you expect to see is something a bit like a bar magnet, where you have the lines coming out from the top and the bottom of the North and South Pole and combining to the...
5: Yeah, so magnet. if you think if you think of a bar magnet, um, you have two rings, basically, that go from the North Pole to the South Pole, and we expect to see a pulse from the, the left-hand side and a pulse from the right-hand side of the... The, the north pole, uh, and or sometimes you get interpulses, which are the the same emission from the south pole. And because, if you think about the dipole again, the bar magnet, the, the field lines get further apart as you get further away from the, the magnet. So we expect the, the two peaks that we see in the pulsar emission to get further apart as you get higher up. And that's why we think we get the shape of the pulse profile that we do. But in practice that's not always what happens. Sometimes they get closer together at at different frequencies. Um, Sometimes there's more than one peak, and sometimes the components appear and disappear, so uh, we still have a a lot to learn about what exactly is happening in the pulsar magnetosphere.
1: Was this quite a surprise then when you looked at this?
5: So we have one example that's very unusual, where the left-hand side of the, the magnetic field seems to stay fixed at all frequencies, And the right-hand side of the magnetic field um, starts on the left of the other component and ends up on the right-hand side. Uh, So the components seem to drift through each other. And if you think about the magnetic field configuration, this um, can't happen. Because if you have two magnetic magnetic fields that are crossing, uh, you expect a, a reconnection event. So you can't have magnetic fields like lines that cross. Basically, they'll form two separate magnetic field lines. And so we have no no way of accounting for this at the moment. Um, there's, we need to study this puzzle uh, in more detail.
1: So using Lofar to get a handle on what's actually going on in this unusual object?
5: Yeah, so um, at higher frequencies, this crossover doesn't happen. It's only in Lofar where we've seen this, the second half of the puzzle, where the, the, um, the component emerges from the, the left-hand side and goes to the right-hand side. This is only visible at, at these low frequencies, which is why LOFAR is very important.
1: Um, I wish you lots of luck using LOFAR, and I guess now you've put some hard grafting as well into building it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, good luck the future research and why this pulse profile changes.
0: Thank you. Thanks for that, Libby. And in the final interview on LOFAR, Christina talked to Anna Kapinska about active galactic nuclei.
7: Joining me today is Anna Kaplinska, who is finishing her PhD in Southampton University, um, but she's also currently working on some LOFAR things down in Portsmouth. First of all, what was your PhD in? Uh, My PhD in Southampton
8: that I've done was actually on uh, radio galaxies. Mm -hmm. Radio galaxies basically are, are one of the Largest single objects in the universe, and also one of the more powerful, very powerful objects, that is actually a signature of a black hole. So basically, if you have a galaxy that we normally, in a, an optical light, we would see as nice a spiral galaxy or elliptical galaxy, if you actually look them in, uh, look into that in radio waves, what you might see is amazing structures. Yeah. Uh, which could be actually really, really massive, a few times bigger than the the galaxy, the spiral galaxy that you can see.
7: Actually larger than the galaxy Absolutely.
8: Itself. Astronomers would call it up to kiloparsec or megaparsec scales. They can be extremely massive. And what that originates from is actually the central black hole. So we're talking of s- masses of million, at least million times more than the mass of our uh, Sun yeah if it's active it may actually produce relativistic outflows to opposite directions from the from the, from the black hole now these outflows which are composed of, um, of, uh, of matter like electrons positions the sort of the sort of matter uh, will basically go first through the galaxy itself then through even further away. And they would drill sort of paths, eventually a, creating something what we called lobes, radio lobes. Okay. This emission can be observed in radio waves, basically. So what you see in radio, two cocoons on each side of the, of the actually black
7: hole. That's fantastic. That's, <laughs> that's really awesome. Um, you said that these jets were relativistic yes, jets. Um, so that absolutely. means that the particles within them are moving at really, really high speeds.
8: Yes, a significant fraction of the light uh,
7: speed of light. Actually,
8: sometimes it can be observed as if they were moving uh, at superluminal speeds, but that's just observational. Uh, if the jet is actually close to the our line of sight, you may you may you may think that it's faster than actually it is, and that was actually one of the. Discoveries that really puzzled uh, astronomers for a while, but now we know it's just uh, observational. Oh bytes. wow,
7: <laughs> that's awesome! So by superluminal, you mean faster, it appears to travel yeah. faster than the speed of light? Exactly.
8: Okay, that's but it's not—it's not physically true. <laughs> it's just uh, observational. It appears to. Yes, yeah, exactly. Illusion. Yeah.
7: Okay, and you're currently—you've begun work on some LOFAR. Yes. <laughs> so actually, uh, it's a little bit linked because for my
8: PhD, I was looking into more kind of theoretical work on that. And I looked into these radio galaxies and their jets across cosmological epochs, uh, how they actually evolve whole, as a whole population, and how they change the universe, how they affect the universe. At the moment, I started um, to work on helping to advance some uh, software. Okay. That will basically help us to involve international uh, stations, law stations. So we, uh, there is a core station in the um, in Netherlands, mm-hmm. and then a few countries around have international ones, like UK, just over here when we are now. Uh, there's also a uh, few stations in Germany, and, uh, and a few other countries have it. Now, these uh, stations have not been included so far into this kind of automatic Uh, procedures to generate images of the sky and the radio wavelengths and basically my job would be to with collaboration some people with Bonn, to try to automate it what interesting thing is in in actually including those baselines is that it will give us a very good resolution so that we could see actually much more detailed structures of the radio structures that you can observe and that would also link to the jets, for example, one of the interesting uh, topics about this is to observe the jets, especially close to close to the um, to the where they're produced, so close to the black holes. Uh, when we can actually observe what happens there, so then we, we have more idea about this what uh, how they actually produced. That's one of the questions
7: that people are still trying to work on, work out how the jets are actually produced. Exactly. Are there a lot of different theories about that, or? Is- is it sort of a general unknown that people are still working towards? There have been few ideas over the
8: past 40 years. I think currently there is one favourite, okay. but it's being
7: worked on. You said that you were looking at um, these lobes of galaxies. That's right. Um, did you look at any particular galaxies or was it, did, did you have, like for example, do you have a favourite <laughs> <object? laughs> Do you have a favourite one? Well, <laughs> as
8: I said, during my PhD, I've, uh, I've been working on uh, whole populations, so I wasn't really looking into the objects themselves. Okay. Actually, a very interesting thing is that um, people believe that these uh, structures and these black holes scale with mm-hmm. mass, so we can have the very supermassive ones, the monsters, in, in the centres of galaxies, which, which are one of the most massive ones and largest, as well as we can have the smaller ones, uh, on a scale of stars, when you have uh, a star by the end of its life, and if it's massive enough, after its explosion would actually create a black hole. Now, these um, black holes may also produce jets. Uh, we believe that, it's depending on the state of the activity of a black hole, so we also believe that this whatever happens with the stellar black holes and their jet-producing phenomena is very much similar. So this is what happens for the uh, supermassive black holes in the galaxies. Even though the star, the stellar black holes, are of a few solar masses, okay, and the black holes in the center of galaxies are at least million to ten or more uh, of, of solar masses. So
7: you it's can ba- still get the same phenomena. Happening. Yes, but on
8: much shorter scales. So we can actually observe them during a few months, for example, <laughs> when we see what really happens. And one of these Uh, this sort of um, objects I was doing for my master's uh, research when I was actually doing um, radio observations was um, one of the peculiar objects Uh, it's called ss 433 Okay. it was believed to be a a supernova at some point that has jets inside so it has a a funny structure of um, uh, a head with ears or wings oh really or um, you could actually could even compare it to some I don't know maybe a UFO (laughs) It is a funny structure, but it's still not sure mm-hmm. where, what really causes it. Whether it is, it's some sort of wind that causes a spherical structure, which is not observed, uh, and then plus jets in the lobes, or, well, if the acceleration disc is precessing, the jets would follow, so they would basically create some sort of um, helical structure.
7: Okay, so when, uh, the, when the jets are sort of moving around. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's actually my favourite because it's, it's one of the most peculiar
8: ones and it's, uh, and it's really amazing.
7: Okay. It's well, a very
8: complicated structure. That has.
7: Well, we'll try and uh, put a link to the object or an image oh, of yeah, the object on the, on the website. Okay, well, all that was really, really fascinating, actually. And um, thank you very much for coming and speaking to the Jobcast.
0: Thanks for that, Christina. And now we get to that part of the show where we can fit in everything else that we want to talk about. It's the odds and ends. So
1: you may have already noticed, but this episode is very heavily LOFAR themed. And this is because the JOGCAST team went down to visit the LOFAR site in Chilwalton Observatory near Winchester on the 15th of February to help out with the rebuild day. And the reason why the LOFAR station needed rebuilding was during the early part of January, strong air force winds and heavy rain actually blew some of the stations over and got into some of the high-frequency array instruments. So all this needed to be fixed. I think there was 15 antennas that had some problems. Now, LOFAR is a very interesting telescope because each actual array station and all the hardware is actually constructed on site by a team of PhD students, postdocs and astronomers. Very, very unusual for cutting-edge instruments now to actually let um, us go along and build it. The way LoFor is designed is it's very simple equipment that doesn't need a lot of skill uh, to put up and fix.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was imagining how difficult it can be to follow instructions on flat-pack furniture, so I'm guessing it's along the same lines.
1: Yeah, it's a flat-pack telescope. (laughs) So all the complicated bits come already uh, packaged from the station in the Netherlands, and it comes over far in nice packs and the instructions to build it are relatively simple to put up on a race. So you measure out the, the distances between each station, and as it's an infrarometer, as we've learnt, it's, it's kind of scary that we're allowed to put all these and situate them
0: and around I'm the site. What I'm going to ask is, did you actually help to fix it?
1: No. <laughs> I really wanted to, but we were also recording a Jogcast video about LOFAR uh, and actually looking at all these antennas in detail and that didn't allow us time to actually have a go at building the telescope. I really, really wanted to, so instead we were observing and occasionally moving a little bit of stuff, but we didn't get to do any hammering or putting concrete in to keep the stations down or anything like that, unfortunately. But but it's going to result in
0: a video, so that's kind of cool. And I've seen the raw footage and it was quite windy that day, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a windy day, not as windy as when it it got damaged, but it was lots and lots of fun. It was very nice to actually get teams of different universities who are going to be using LOFAR. They're actually building a telescope, and I have to say, it's much quicker to assemble than ALMA. How How dare you?
9: (laughs) (laughs) ALMA can't be flat pack construction; it takes a little bit longer.
0: Do they let... Students drive those massive trucks that they use to transport the dishes?
9: Not to the best of my knowledge.
0: Postdocs? Nope. <laughs> they haven't invited me down, so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it is very nice to actually be involved in constructing a telescope that's going to be used for cutting-edge science. It's a, a rare, very rare opportunity, so the job were very, very happy to actually be there.
9: From the strong winds and uh, wet weather that destroyed LOFAR to uh, a water world which has been discovered... The Hubble Space Telescope has been used to confirm um, whether or not a planet discovered from a ground-based telescope in 2009 is in fact a water world. And it has. The exotically named GJ 1214b is a a so-called super-Earth. It's bigger than Earth and it's about 40 light-years away. And from the recent observations, it's been proved that it is composed of water.
1: Is this water world like we get in a really bad 90s TV film? It wasn't a TV no,
3: film, it was TV- a real film.
1: It was a real film, it should have been a TV film, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with people around on jet skis, or is it the water just no. in vapour form?
9: Well, it's going around a, a comparatively cool Red Dwarf star, so um, the surface is, is around 200 degrees Celsius, I think it orbits a bit closer, but the water there is not water, um, apparently that could exist some exotic materials like hot ice or superfluid water. Mm. I like the
0: idea of hot ice. (laughs) Yeah, so the state of something depends on pressure as well as temperature. Yep. So at these pressures, you could have solid water or ice that was actually well above zero degrees centigrade.
9: Yes, and liquid water that was well above Earth's boiling
0: point. That's really strange. So you could have...
9: A glass of steam with a ice cube that's at room temperature. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, Why do they not think of this in the film? <laughs> so anyway, this interesting planet, which definitely needs a better name than GJ1214B, is definitely a likely candidate for follow-up observations with the long-anticipated James Webb
0: Telescope.
1: Can we call it Kevin? Kevin.
0: Kevin. Like Kevin Costner. (laughs) Oh my. Well, we've already established that you're Bill Keck 2B, so if you want to rename, maybe it's easy to rename Kevin Costner, GJ, whatever it was.
1: GJ1214B.
0: Costner. (laughs) Neutrinos may not be going faster than light after all. Hooray! Who's happy about that?
9: Adam? I'm happy because it means my degree is valid. (laughs) (laughs) Some people may be
0: a bit disappointed.
1: I'm not happy. I was kind of liking the idea we could go faster than light, or, well, neutrinos could go faster than light at least.
0: Well, it's not completely confirmed, but you may have heard in recent months that there was a team, a collaboration called Opera, who had sent some neutrinos over from Switzerland to Italy underground, and they'd actually measured that they travelled there faster than the speed of light, which is, to say the least, awkward for... Uh, physics. (laughs) But now for the first time, they've decided that they might have had some errors in their experimental setup, some systematic problems. There's actually two things they've identified. One of them, believe it or not, is basically kind of a loose wire or a faulty cable. (laughs) The reason is that they've got to time how long these neutrinos take to travel very accurately. So they use GPS, global positioning system, to correct their own clocks. And they have to get the signal from the antennas above ground down to the experiment underneath ground, which goes through optical fiber. And that's where there may have been a loose connection. So the signal may have travelled there in a slightly different amount of time than they thought. And if this is true, then it means that actually, possibly, the neutrinos weren't going faster than light. On the other hand, they found another effect where their clocks actually may have been synchronised slightly wrongly. And we're only talking about tens of nanoseconds, which is tens of billionths of a second. But their clocks may have been a little bit wrong, and if that's the case then the neutrinos may have actually been going even more faster than light than we thought. So it's not settled yet. It depends which of these effects is the real one.
9: Could the case occur where the loose wire and the bad clocks cancel each other out and it's still going at the original
0: faster-than-light speed? (laughs) Yes, apparently that is a possibility. They have to investigate it. And all this really demonstrates why they want to try and use a different experimental setup to test it.
1: Well, one of the reasons why I'm really upset is because... If neutrinos can't go faster than light, that means time travel and negative mass can no longer exist in physics. Well, they didn't exist in (laughs) physics. And then for a very, very short period of time, you could go back in time and objects could have negative mass. And I just thought this was very, very interesting. When you have a theory and then everything agrees with it. And then it's tested and tested, and then finally I thought, "Oh, something that's, this theory's held up really well. It was nice to have something that may have just pushed our knowledge a little bit more as well.
0: Yeah, well I'm sure eventually we will, or scientists, will go beyond what we know now. But I don't necessarily buy all this stuff about time travel and I don't think it dismantles all the previous theories which have explained everything so well up to now. Maybe an extension of them. But the time travel thing I always thought was a bit funny because people were using special relativity, Einstein's theory, and Basically, that says that if an object's going faster than light, then it can go back in time. But it also has to have more than an infinite mass and more than an infinite amount of energy is required to get it there. So basically, the theory's broken. You can't really use the broken theory to then say it's going back in time. So I'll just believe that.
1: <laughs> okay, you have a very valid point. Maybe not time travel, but imaginary mass. I'll I'll stay with that.
0: Imaginary
9: mass. Yeah. I just like the idea of Libby having an imaginary mass, which is like an imaginary friend, but just a blob.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And now to a man whose thought processes may have been measured to be faster than the speed of light. Telling us about what's in the Northern Hemisphere night sky this month, it's Ian Morrison.
10: The night sky, March 2012. Well, as the sun sets... We have a lovely region of the sky over towards the western horizon. Orion down at the bottom, just beginning to set probably after sunset. Above that is the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with the bright star Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, carrying on in the same direction from Orion, here comes that very little lovely group of stars called the Pleiades Cluster. But they're now setting. What will we see? Well, up to the left of Orion we have the two stars, Castor and Pollux, the heads of the heavenly twins, Gemini. Over to the left, we have the constellation of Cancer the Crab, really quite faint, but with a very nice cluster called M44, the beehive cluster at its heart, nice to look at with binoculars. Moving over to the south, a little bit to the southeast, Leo the Lion, below which this year we will see planet Mars. Coming further over just rising in the east after sunset is the constellation of Virgo and there in fact is the planet Saturn. All of these will come back a little bit later on but do look high up in the sky over towards the north and you'll see Ursa Major very nicely positioned high up. There are many very nice objects to view with a telescope in Ursa Major and if you look at the night sky page Follow down under the stars, you'll find some of them mentioned, and you'll see quite a bright star just above the eastern horizon, rising as the evening moves on, and that's the star Arcturus, in the constellation of Bootes. So, quite a nice skyscape to see. Well, the first half of March gives us one of the best times for viewing the planets for quite a long time. After sunset, we have Jupiter and Venus seen in the west, whilst Mercury, if you're lucky, will be seen below. Later, Mars, reaching opposition on the 3rd of March, will be seen south around midnight. Saturn will be rising well up into the evening sky. Well, Jupiter, it's been a wonderful planet to observe, high in the sky over the last few months. It's still seen well up in the western sky after sunset, about 45 degrees, in fact, above the southwestern horizon still shining at magnitude minus 2.2 in the constellation of Aries. Its angular size is now dropping as it moves away from us. It's about 36 arc seconds, dropping to 34 during the month. But a small telescope will still easily show the equatorial belts and also the four Galilean moons. Looking at it over the last few weeks, I've seen some quite prominent dark regions in the north equatorial belt, and they're called barges. Anyway, some months ago I said you must buy a telescope to have a look at Jupiter this year. I hope you have. Well, I mentioned Saturn earlier. It rises about four hours after sunset at the beginning of March and can be seen due south at around 3.30am. Sadly, in contrast to Jupiter, Saturn is moving towards the lower part of the ecliptic and will not rise higher than about 31 degrees, depending, of course, where you actually live in the UK or elsewhere. A nice reason for going to the south of Europe, perhaps, to the Mediterranean. It's in Virgo, shining at Manitou plus 0.4, and it's about 7 degrees slightly up and to the left of the first magnitude star, Spica. A nice thing, however, is that the rings are now opening out and are about 15 degrees to the line of sight, so they will appear appreciably wider than they have done for a year or so. It's well worth looking at them now with a small telescope you should easily see Cassini's division and under good seeing with a slightly bigger telescope perhaps you might even spot what is called Enka's division in the outer ring and also the inner rather elusive C ring. Mercury it reaches its greatest elongation from the sun on March the 5th so you should see it quite easily about half an hour after sunset perhaps for another half an hour or so it's down to the lower right of venus and about 12 and a half degrees above the horizon half an hour after sunset but it then dims very rapidly in fact it drops from magnitude minus 0.4 to plus 0.6 in just five days and so rapidly will disappear from view as it drops back towards the sun Well, Mars, I'll basically talk about in the highlight of the month, it reaches opposition on the 3rd of March, which means it'll be due south around midnight at an elevation of around 46 degrees. It has a magnitude of minus 1.2 and is moving retrograde below the belly of Leo the Lion. That apparent motion backwards across the sky is because the Earth is sort of moving around quickly on the inside track, And so our view of Mars against the background stars changes. Well, Venus is also prominent in the southwestern sky after sunset. Its angular separation from the sun is about 44 degrees. And at sunset will actually be 38 degrees above the horizon, which is about as high as it ever gets. So in fact, it's a very good time to observe Venus. The angular size increases from about 18 to 25 arc seconds during the month. As it does so, however, the phase, which is the percentage we see illuminated, drops, in fact, from 64 to 49%. The result is that the brightness that we see, magnitude about minus 4.3, 4.4, stays pretty constant. doesn't quite matter too much when we observe Venus. It always has the same basic brightness. If it's far beyond the Sun, most of it's illuminated. When it's nearer and bigger, far less is illuminated. And the two effects basically cancel out. So what about some highlights this month? Well I guess the major highlight has to be the fact that during the first week of March Mars is at opposition. So it'll be closest to the earth, in fact on the 5th. It's actually pretty good for much of March so don't worry too much if it's too cloudy during the few days when it's closest. Oppositions of Mars occur about every two years and two months. But how close mars will be and hence how large its apparent size as seen in our telescopes varies by quite a bit almost by a factor of two this is the result of the elliptical orbits of mars and to a lesser extent that of the earth to get the minimum possible separation mars must be closest to the sun when at opposition and the earth must be furthest away that actually happens in August each year, roughly. On the 27th of August, 2003, Mars was just 56 million kilometers away and had an angular size of 25.1 arc seconds. That was the closest approach to the Earth for about 60,000 years. And we're gonna have to wait again till about 2,284 for it to be so close once more. Now, following such a close opposition, the distance at successive oppositions, every two years, two months, first increases and then reduces again. And sadly, this year, at opposition, Mars will be pretty much at its furthest distance with a maximum angular size of just 13.81 arc seconds. Now, in the following years, in 2014, 2016, 2018, the angular size is going to increase again. Firstly to 15.16, then to 18.6, and in 2018, 24.31 arc seconds. So that's going to be a great year to observe it. As I said earlier, the maximum elevation from the UK is only about 46 degrees, but nevertheless, given a good evening with quite calm seeing the atmosphere being quite steady, it's still well worth observing with a telescope. The north polar cap is tilted towards us, so sure it should be easily visible. And around the time of closest approach after midnight, the most prominent marking on Mars, which is called Certis major, will be facing us. So let's hope for a few clear nights with good seeing. On March the 4th, there's quite a nice lineup of the planets Jupiter, Venus and Mercury just after sunset. If you can find Mercury, and you probably would need binoculars, but don't use them near the sun until the sun basically has set, you might well see Uranus as well. If you place Mercury to the right of the field of view of a pair of binoculars, just over two degrees, just slightly down to the left, you'll see Uranus shining at magnitude plus 5.9. So it should be fairly easily visible. So That's a nice chance to see Uranus. I highlighted March the 24th. That's when Saturn and its moons will be very nicely in the sky, very nice grouping of the moons. A small telescope should easily see Titan, one of eight inches or so more, will see some of the fainter moons as well. And in fact, on that day, the moon will have set a lot earlier, so it won't hinder our view. March the 25th, Jupiter and Venus will be in the sky with a thin crescent moon. It's always a good thing to look out for what they call Earthshine, the old moon in the new moon's arms. Venus, at magnitude minus 4, roughly, will be in view well above Jupiter. Now, at the beginning of the month, Jupiter was higher up than Venus. Their positions have changed. So there we go. Quite a nice lot of things to see in March. I do hope you enjoy it and we get some nice clear skies.
0: Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's John Field telling us what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere night sky during March.
6: Kia ora, and welcome to the March night sky from Carter Observatory. March sees our nights quickly becoming longer, and this means the opportunity for more observing. Our summer constellations of Taurus, Orion, and Gemini are sliding towards the western horizon a little more each night. Low in the northwest, the Pleiades Matariki are setting earlier each evening and will soon be lost in our twilight sky. They will, however, reappear in our morning sky at the time of our winter solstice. Following the Pleiades is the V-shaped head of Taurus, the bright star, Aldebaran, the follower of the Pleiades, marks one of the bull's eyes. This orange star is the 13th brightest star in the night sky. Current estimates put this star at 65 light years away. The orange hue of Aldebaran means the star has a much cooler surface temperature than our own sun. It is a red giant star in the final stages of its stellar evolution. The fainter stars of the V of the bull's head are formed by the more distant Hyades star cluster. In Greek mythology, they are half sisters of the Pleiades. This cluster is estimated to be about 150 light years away and contains over 100 stars that are brighter than ninth magnitude. This cluster includes a number of double or multiple stars. Almost due north in our early evening sky is a faint zodiac constellation of Cancer the Crab, which appears as four stars with a haze at the center. In binoculars, this haze reveals itself to be a cluster of stars known as the beehive. Although this cluster is about 500 to 600 light years away, it is about three times the size of the full moon as viewed here on Earth. Recent studies indicate that this cluster of similar age and shares a similar motion through space to the Hyades. This may mean that, long ago, they shared a similar location during formation. Following the crab across the sky and rising at sunset is the large constellation of Leo the Lion. Leo is one of the 12 zodiac constellations, and this constellation dates back to the time of the Persians. It later became associated with the legend of Hercules, and the killing of this lion was the first of its 12 tasks. The brightest star in Leo, Regulus, shines at magnitude 1.4 and is the 22nd brightest star in our night sky. It is a blue-white star and has a magnitude 7.6 orange-red companion that is visible in binoculars or a small telescope. In 1771, Regulus became associated with being one of the four Persian royal stars that were used to mark the times of the solstices and equinox by the ancient Persians. Regulus marked the summer solstice, Antares the autumnal equinox, Pomerholt marked the winter solstice, and Aldebaran the spring equinox. Although these titles have become popular in archaeoastronomy, work done by scholars on the original text that no mention of royal stars occurs, and the then association has come about by wishful thinking and repetition rather than fact. Currently there is an extra star in Leo. This bright star is the planet Mars, and in fact currently only Sirius is brighter. Mars reaches opposition on the 3rd of March, and during this period is when it is at its closest to the Earth. It'll be at its brightest and through a telescope its largest. Unfortunately, Mars is not very close at this opposition and will not be very interesting through small telescopes. Larger telescopes reveal a polar cap along with dark features on the planet's disk. As a day on Mars is slightly longer than our own, viewing at the same time on successive nights will reveal different features on the small rocky world. Rising up in the eastern sky around about 10 p.m. at the beginning of the month and that p.m. by the end of the month is the planet Saturn. It all appears a very bright yellow star in the constellation of Virgo. The Milky Way runs from north to south in our evening sky and is at its brightest near our southern horizon. This thin pale band marks the plane of our galaxy as light comes from the glow of many distant stars. With the human eye we can see about 6,000 individual stars of the estimated 400 billion stars that form our galaxy. To many cultures, the Milky Way has been seen as a path or a river across the sky. To Māori and Aotearoa, it's Te Ikaroa, the long fish, and it's along this path that Tamaherere sailed as he placed the stars into the heavens. The mottled appearance of the Milky Way comes from dark clouds of interstellar material that blocks the light of the more distant stars. Sitting in the southern part of our Milky Way is Crux, commonly called the Southern Cross, and nearby the Two Pointer stars. Between Crux and Canis Major sits the broken remains of the great ship Argo. Until 1752, it was the largest constellation. Then it was broken up into three parts, Carina the Keel, Vela the sails, and Pupus the deck. One part was not retained, and that was Malus the Mast. This group of stars was then formed into a new constellation, Pyxis the Compass. This faint constellation has no targets so of interest for small telescopes. Carina has a great number of objects to spot with the unaided eye. The brightest star in Carina is Canopus, the second brightest star in the night sky. It shines at magnitude minus 0.72. Until recently, the distance of this star ranged from 96 to 1,300 light years. This was due to the unusual spectra of this star. With the launch of the Hipparchus satellite in 1989, allowing an accurate measuring of this star's parallax. Parallax is the amount of movement of star exhibits compared to the more distant background stars as viewed from two different points. This star has an estimated mass of 8.5 times that of our sun and is 13,000 times more luminous. The current estimate is 310 light years, making Canopus the brightest star than 700 light years of our solar system. The great ship Argo was associated with the legend of Jason and the Argonauts. The ship carried the crew on their quest to find the Golden Fleece. The ship rides along the Milky way with its hull, Kareem the Keel, pointed towards the south celestial pole. This is the point that is overhead the zenith at Earth's south pole. It is around this point that all the stars in our southern sky rotate. In Wellington, its height is 41 degrees above our horizon. This corresponds with our latitude of 41 degrees south. This means that any star or constellation that is within the 41 degrees of the south celestial pole will never set below a flat horizon here in Wellington. March the 20th marks the autumnal equinox here in the southern hemisphere. This time marks the time halfway between our summer and winter solstices. The sun rises due east and sets due west, and our day and night time hours are of similar length. From this time and until the time of the winter solstice, our night time hours are longer than our daytime hours. In Māori legend, the changing position of the sun's rising point along the horizon was related to Te the sun, and his two wives. Hine Rāmāti, the summer wife, and Hine Takarua, his winter wife. At the time of the summer solstice, he is with Hine Rāmāti, but then Hine Takarua starts calling him. And with much regret, he leaves Hinei Ramati and then hurries across the horizon to Hinei Tekarua, and he arrives at the time of the winter solstice. When he arrives, he hears the call of Hinei Ramati and begins his journey back towards her along the horizon. We wish all of our listeners a happy equinox and hope the skies remain clear for you.
0: Thanks for that, John. And now it's on to the feedback section of the show. Well, we had no post or email. But on the forum, Mark C told us that he went to AstroFest and he talked to Professor Brian Ellison about ALMA, which is Adam's favourite telescope.
9: It certainly is. And Mark left a really good question on the forum, which I hopefully answered
0: uh, sufficiently well. And thank you. It was very interesting. And thanks also to Joe Ward and Greg Bernstein for posting.
1: On Twitter, Neil Bennett-Williams said Lucy Green's interview helped him with Open University coursework. It's always very nice to know that the Jogcast, as well as being chatty, helps people with uh, their science endeavours.
9: On
0: Facebook, thanks to Philip Lariche. And that's actually it for the feedback. So if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
1: On the forum at forum.jodcast.net.
9: On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jogcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jogcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jogcast.
0: On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jogcast. And you can always send us posts. The address is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Tom Hassel, Neil Jackson and Anna Kapinska for the interviews.
1: The editors were Mark Perver, Megan Argo, Claire Bretherton, Mel Ephraim, Libby Jones and Dan Thornton.
9: And the producer was Libby Jones.
0: So until next time... Jodom! Thank